Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to introduce our next guest, Christine McKay. Christine is a global negotiation strategist. She's an international speaker, president of Venn Negotiations, and author of the book, Why Not Ask? Christine has negotiated on behalf of or with the majority of the Fortune 500. She has a passion for contract negotiations. She loves working with the little guy in David versus Goliath negotiations to create new opportunities and advantages to achieve better agreements than they ever initially imagined. Today, she is going to share with us her stories, her techniques, her examples, and how her philosophy negotiations are about relationships and you can't win relationships feeds everything that she does. I've had the chance to speak with her several times previously. She is super intelligent, very methodical and strategic with what she does. And I'm really, really excited to share her experience, her perspective, and her ideas with all of you. As always, before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Of course, we have HumanTel. For everybody who has ever wondered, what can I do to get better at understanding when people's emotions are changing during my conversations, please head over to HumanTel.com and check out all of their self-paced online best-in-class training for recognizing shifts of emotions in somebody's facial expressions. Once we get better at understanding what people are feeling, we can understand what they're thinking within the context of the situation and adapt our approach accordingly. When you go to Humantel, please enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off all of their training. I highly recommend it. Also, please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Over at Emotional Intelligence Magazine, you can explore their ever-expanding catalog of books, podcasts, interviews, articles, online training, in-person training, and so much more. Head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine to check that out. And of course, for all the professional interviewers that may be watching, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. While you're there, you can explore all the member benefits, all of the dialogue, all of the interaction. You can look at their legal updates, their tools for professional interviewers, their elite training days, their webinars, all of their training events that they have to see if it's the membership is best for you and your team. Also, while you're there, check out the Certified Forensic Interviewer Designation Program. And at this point in your career, see if that's best for you and your team to help level up and make sure that we have our expertise at the highest possible level for all of our investigative interviews. And once again, thank you all so very much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Without further ado, Christine McKay. Good morning, Christine. It is so great to see you. It has been way too long. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I loved our last conversation so much. I am so excited to pick this up again. I feel the exact same way. I was thrilled when you said you would take the time to be here, especially knowing that you're on the West Coast and you woke up a little bit early for this conversation. I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you. That's so okay. As I'm we up get four, started, so we're good. <laughs> so as we get started, I am quite familiar with your expertise and your background and what you do, but the people who are listening might not be. So Please, if you don't mind, start us off by taking a few minutes to fill us in on what you do with Venn Negotiation and how you got here. So we are the Negotiation Center of Excellence for Small and Mid-Sized Companies. And so what does that mean? Well, we my, my personal expertise is negotiating David and Goliath contracts. Um, so we're helping small, mid-sized companies negotiate with some of their largest customers, largest suppliers, largest investors, and exits. And so we are really knowledgeable about how to do that, the games that big companies play, the risks that they push down to smaller businesses, uh, the price pressures that they put on, and we help our clients mitigate that. And we do that by coaching and doing both coaching. We'll coach a client through a deal. So I have a, we have a client right now in the UK who we're coaching through a deal. We will take the lead on a negotiation, not a replacement for an attorney, but we will lead the business part of the discussion. Um, and then we do some training um, on the back end. Um, we are just getting ready to release a new product that will actually convert contracts into pictures. 
so that um, executives can read, uh, can know in a matter of seconds where the risk sits in their contracts. And we're super excited about that, that then our VenMaps launch is going to be later in October. I am extremely curious about the Venn maps, but I know it's coming in October and I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So we can connect later to talk more about that. But I am very, very interested to hear more about that. And I know that you have a ton of experience negotiating for and with, I almost said against, that's the wrong word, for and with Fortune 500 organizations, mm-hmm. you know, strong career, a lot of education. Yes. Yes, I 30 years, 30 year career, uh, started in international mergers and acquisitions, then I moved to procurement and in post merger universe. And then I started working in sales departments, I've negotiated with half the fortune 500 across 55 countries, um, and 1000s of small and mid sized companies. So I've seen I've seen most things. Um, I've seen quite a bit of things, quite a few things. And uh, it's been an amazing career. And the thing that's amazing for me is that I identified how, you know, usually like M&A, sales, procurement, those are like threads that people go super deep on. But for me, the thread that I loved was always the negotiation thread. And for me, it's the same. The process is the same. The the issues are different. The ex, some of the specific expertise is, is different. But that, I don't need that. My clients have that. And I, I need to be the expert in negotiating. And that is what I am. So, um, and that's what I, I just, I absolutely love it. And that's part of why we've been, we, we were talking before you hit record, that we've been doing a bit of a, uh, transformation in our business because we went further down during the pandemic, kind of we were just starting the business and we started going further down the the training route. And that isn't as much my passion um, as actually negotiating. So we've re we've we've turned it around and we're really focusing on the negotiation piece. So that's fantastic. And you've already touched on so many things that I want to go back and dive into. I love how you just mentioned the importance of process, that you don't necessarily have to be the expert on every little thing. You're coming in as the negotiator, the expertise on the process of negotiating, putting that together a little bit off topic, but several years ago, I was working with a client and they're in the HR benefits space And they reached out to strategize for a big meeting to potentially land a very large manufacturing client. And they immediately start telling me, okay, we're really trying to make ourselves experts in manufacturing as quickly as we can. Why? They're not hiring you to make anything. They're hiring you to solve the people problems. You need to be the people expert, not the manufacturing expert. And they just stopped. They're like, we've never thought about it like that before. Well, welcome to your stress relief. All you have to do is be the expert about what you're already an expert in and just tie it into some of the unique people issues that they might face in a manufacturing environment. That's where you slot in. So to hear your thought process reflecting that of, yeah, there's some specific expertise or contextual factors that we need to adjust for. But if you could please talk a little bit about how important having a process for negotiation is and how easy that makes it, or easy is not the right word, but how it streamlines everything else, I would appreciate it. So having a process for your negotiation is, it is time-saving, it is cost, gener- it generates cost and, and revenue benefit. It, I mean, it is, every, I spend more time in some cases negotiating the negotiation process than anything else, especially when I'm working and negotiating with a really big company that has really structured, detailed processes with tons of freaking people in it. And so when we're representing a smaller mid-sized company, we want to make sure that we get a stamp on that process. So we negotiate everything from um, how often are we going to meet? When are we going to meet? Where are we going to meet? Who's taking notes? Who's sending out notes? Who Who's the team on each side? I want to know who all the players are on each side. I want to know it in advance. How long does it take to get, to get the deal approved? What happens if somebody's on vacation? 
Um, all of these things are super important. And what one of the benefits of it is it lays the groundwork for proving that you can get to agreement. Most people don't think about negotiating the process. They just dive right in. But as a smaller, mid-sized company, I want to try to take control of minute-taking, sending out meeting invites. I want my... I want my client to be at the forefront. I want my client to control that because I know that down the road, that big company is going to be applying timing pressure. I don't want to be a fall victim to that timing pressure. Their, 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 uh, you know, their time is not my time. And so I want to make sure that we're controlling some of that and mitigating some of the risks that they're going to put on the back end. And so I do that through the negotiation process. Um, and it's also, I mean, for us, like my, I have a very, very simple process. I, I don't, I think people overcomplicate negotiation. Um, I think they over gamify it. Um, you know, I just, I just think they make it too damn complicated. I was talking to someone just recently who was telling me about how, how my eyebrows are graying indicates certain things about who I'm like, what the F are you talking about? I was like, that's just the most ridiculous kind of thinking. That is unnecessary in my experience in negotiation. But having the process up front, for us, it's we it's three A's. You assess, you ask, you act. That's it. That, there's nothing else. And in assess, you assess three things. You assess you, them, and it. What do you need? What do you want? What do they need? What do they want? And what are the external, what's the external environment constraints that are being placed on you, whether that's economic, whether it's an invisible negotiator that you don't know about um, that's going to come in and shock the crap out of you by vetoing something you thought was agreed to or whatever. But that assess piece and that getting that process right is that that's super important. And then the the negotiation, negotiating the negotiating negotiation process is actually part of the asking phase. Right. I've already done a bunch of homework and I have a I have a theory about what they're going to do and be willing to do. Um, and then the negotiation process is my first my first point where I get to prove that we get agreement and I get to build off of that. And as a small, mid-sized company, you know, lots of our clients, most of our clients go into these big negotiations thinking, you know, with Walmart and Amazon and Apple and Google and Pfizer and, you know, name, name the big company. And they're like, no leverage. I have no power. And, and I'm like, that is total BS. I'm trying really hard not to swear. Cause I do that a lot, but okay. Can't offend me. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. But it's total bullshit. Right. And one place where I make sure that I, that I demonstrate that I have power and leverage is in owning huge chunks of the process management piece because it demonstrates that I am invested in the deal. I care about the deal, that I'm on top of things, that I'm diligent. I mean, it just proves a lot of different things and it's a great place to showcase who you are in the negotiation. That last five minutes covers so much and has so much depth. Just starting with the fact that acknowledging that a especially in these David Goliath negotiations, as you describe them, it's set up to favor Goliath. Goliath, they're not putting these processes together. They're not adding all these people, these requirements. They're not doing it to benefit the little guy. They're doing it to insulate themselves. Like you said, to pass on the risk, to give themselves the best chance to be successful and to be profitable. And I love how you called out the opportunity for them to put time pressure on at the end. I've seen it happen way too many times. So the strategic value of negotiating the process and assuming control of the process is layered from the credibility. It's not your first rodeo, everything you just demonstrated, but it's like, it's playing chess before the board has been put on the table, getting that far out ahead to put your client in a position. And I really love what you said about it being bullshit that the smaller person doesn't have any leverage. There are opportunities to create leverage, either through process or through influence at many points in the conversation. And giving up on that too early is like accepting defeat 
when there are still so many potential avenues or opportunities ahead. So to the degree that you're comfortable sharing, I certainly don't want to ask mm-hmm. for anything that's proprietary or, or, or secret to your processes. And certainly knowing that you're participating in ongoing negotiations, want to be sensitive to that. Um, but oh, no worries. Is- I, I'm very sensitive to that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, besides negotiating the process, what are some of the other techniques or perspectives you work on with your David clients to help them generate that perception of leverage and confidence during negotiations? Well, this one always surprises people because we go into what we've been taught that I think is fundamentally flawed in negotiation is we've been taught to walk in and um, I I have my fists clenched and I'm holding, I'm just, I'm clutching my, my arms to my chest for those who can't see. And the, and the reason why I'm doing that is because we're taught to go in like that. Like we're ready for a fight in a negotiation and I'm protecting my body because this is what I've worked for. This is what I've got. Oh my God. I dare you to come and take it. I dare you to come and take it. And so what we've been taught as, and, and, and it's not even like there are tons of, I've taken so many training courses and most professional negotiators will tell you that that is one of the worst possible approaches you can take in negotiation. But for whatever reason, most people don't listen to, to, to that counsel. But here's what I've found in my 30 years negotiating in so many cultures, because um, that that's a huge distinction too, is if I go in trying to protect what I have and I'm like, I dare you to take it and you got to fight me for it kind of stuff with a big chip on my shoulder, I end up with a crappy deal at the end of the, at the end. And I don't know that it's a crappy deal because all I'm doing is evaluating, did I sign the deal or not? And that's a terrible metric to evaluate whether the deal was a good deal or not. Getting it signed is not the measure of a good deal. And so what I do and what's counterintuitive is I walk in with my arms open and I say, this is what I have to give. And I am really transparent. I am so transparent about what I ca- I'm capable of doing, what I'm not capable of doing. I don't like the game of it. It's not, it doesn't, it's a, for me, what I've learned is that negotiation isn't a game. It is a conversation. It's a conversation about, I have something that you want. And is it going to work for us to do something together? And, you know, I talk about, um, and my lawyer friends laugh at me, I talk about how negotiation is a hopeful act. And negotiation is a hopeful act because we use information from the past to negotiate something in the present that we won't realize the benefit of until the future. And so contracts are incredibly strategic documents and how we put our negotiations forward and what we do today is going to impact what we're going to what our our businesses and our worlds are going to be like in one three five ten how i've seen i i just finished negotiating a contract the original contract was still in place and it was signed in 1976 (laughs) right so it's like you never know and um So I find transparency is really an effective tool for doing that. Like, what margin do you want to make? Like, what kind of, who asked that question? What kind of margin do you need to make to be successful in the market? What, what, what's your incentive as a salesperson this quarter? What, what are what are what is your management trying to get you to push on me this quarter? And we'll see if we can figure out a way to make it happen. Don't know that we can, but we'll see what we can do, right? I'd rather have somebody be upfront and direct with me about what their back channel pressures are so that I can help try to solve that problem if they can help me solve a problem for my, for, for my client. And so for me, it's just a conversation. And the more transparent I am, the more authentic and upfront I am about what I can and cannot do, the faster the negotiation goes and the much more effective the deal is over the long term. 
all amazing points of view and absolutely true in my experience as well. The sooner you can get the, like the elephants in the room, so to speak, the sooner you can start positioning them on the table. And once people are comfortable enough to discuss those, what else can't we talk about at that point in time? If I recall correctly, and I probably going to get this close. So please wordsmith me where I go wrong on this. What you just said reminds me of something that I think you said even previous to when you had me on your show. Do you like to say something along the lines that a negotiation is a conversation about relationships and you can't win relationships? Do I have that right-ish? Yes, you do. Yes. <laughs> and that that's the thing. We think of, um, <clears throat> we think of no matter how many professional negotiators, and there are a lot of us out in the market <clears throat> telling people negotiation isn't about winning. For whatever reason, people still show up haggling, trying to, to win, um, and you can't win in a relationship. Now, there are, not every relationship is the same. Absolutely a fair statement. Um, but, you know, if you're buying a car, we tend to ha haggle. My mom has bought a car every 18 months from the same dealership for 30 years. Trust me, she gets a damn good deal on her cars, <laughs> right? <laughs> And so even situations where we think haggling is the way to negotiate, um, it, it's rare. That's rarely the case. It's rarely effective. It rarely yields the best outcome. Agree entirely. You put people in a position, not only where now we're executing that old tried and true reject and retreat process of negotiation, but now I have to defend my self-image. Every time I give something up, it's another chip out of my self-image. And at some point I got to get even, I got to win, I've got to fight back. So, and I think my next thought ties into something you said earlier with your transparency and being so open up front, arms open instead of crossed. Often the best way to maintain control of a conversation is to let somebody else to a large degree feel like they're in control of it because they don't have to fight their way through it. I love what you said about controlling like the process. But once you and I are actually sitting down and talking, if you feel like I'm trying to just control every direction that this conversation is going between the, th the two of us, you're going to fight back. Why wouldn't you? But if I can be transparent and have my arms open, now I'm more likely to invite you into the conversation and get more of what I need out of it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really big. One of the other things that I do a lot and have am just very effective at is I label my behavior um, and my emotion effectively. So I don't have the right, in my opinion, to label somebody else's emotion. That concept, which is really prevalent in the market, I think is bullshit on like a level. And um, to quote my kids. And um, <laughs> and I I just... I don't, I don't get to crawl into somebody's minds and tell them how they're feeling. I don't get to assume how somebody's feeling about something. And I, you know, negotiation is very emotional. As soon as we want something from somebody, we're emotionally engaged. We can't get around it. But what we can do is we can label how we can label our emotion more effectively. And then we can choose to act in a way that's contrary to how we're feeling. And that is to me, one of the hallmarks of effective negotiators is being, you know, that what you're talking about, that control, the desire for control is a fear response, right? And that is a pure emotional response. Now, there are two reasons why somebody is in that mode. Um, one is they could just be an asshole. So, you know, but you know what? In all my years, I can count on one hand the number of true assholes I've ever negotiated with. And, they're, they're, and they 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 are peaches of stories for sure. But the majority of times when somebody's in that mode, in that that control, fear uh, mode, or anger, any any of the like the strong emotions, it's because there's something that I did or said that has activated a memory for them from the past, and they're not associating that emotion with what I just did or said per se, they're connected back. They're actually, they're actually not present at the moment. They're, they're literally not present. They're literally stuck in whatever past memory, past story, 
that they've been telling themselves. So as an as as an effective negotiator, one of the things that I really like to do is create space that allows them to explore that. Whether that's we take a break, whether that's I I label how I'm feeling about their emotion <clears throat> because usually when somebody overreacts, it triggers an emotion in me and it's like oh, wait a minute, I'm feeling, you know, what you just did or said is causing, I'm feeling this certain thing and maybe I need to take a break to explore it. So I never put it on them. I put it on myself, which then they, they go, then most of the times they're connecting. They're like, wait, what did I just, what did I just do? Cause sometimes they don't even realize it. So that is a really powerful that that's part. So emotional transparency is as important to me as being transparent with my margin, what I'm trying to do and where, you know, the, the economics and the risk components, but emotional transparency, emotional authenticity is very rare to find at the negotiation table. It is for me, my most powerful tool. Such sage perspective, hundred percent right on the need for control being a fear response and I love the idea of not labeling how somebody else is feeling. Like imagine being upset and somebody looking at you and saying, well, you look upset. Well, you're friggin' right. I'm upset. And now I'm double upset at you for reminding me that I'm upset. Yeah. Like what a great way to make the situation worse. And I love, love the technique of putting it on yourself, allow them to connect, allow them to identify. And even if they don't, let's just say they miss it. Who cares? Because you still got the break, you still got the decompression, you still got the realignment that you were looking for. The outcome is more important than this moment in time right now. So you're you're putting it on yourself to create the break that you need to get back to the successful path that you were on. Genius. What ideas or techniques can you share with people to help them learn to control or identify, label their own emotions? So one of the things that I do is I, <clears throat> I used to try to control my emotions, <clears throat> control, manage, and people talk about all that, that all the time. I have quit doing that. I no longer try to control my emotions. Instead, I control my response. And that's a very different, that's a very different way of thinking about it. So my what I've learned in my life is that emotion is an involuntary response to a past memory brought forward into the present. And so when now that I know that having, you know, now and I see it all the time in myself, I can go if I'm starting to feel something right, I can go, oh, crap, you know, I'm I'm feeling some things. Okay, so what do I usually do when I feel all that? If I do that, that's not going to yield the outcome I want. And it's like, all right. So then one of my big things that I do is I ask my counterpart, do you mind if I ask you a question? So that doing that immediately moves me out of the emotional center of my brain into the logic center of my brain. And everyone always says, sure, go ahead, right? And now I can ask, you know, I I had a guy, this was about a year ago, a little over a year ago now. And um, he made a comment about why would anyone hire a woman to negotiate? Everyone knows women can't negotiate. So that was exciting. And, um, And so I felt some things when he said that, you know, I felt, I got angry. I felt anger. I felt diminished. I felt... I'm marginalized. I felt put down. I mean, I just, I felt a lot of things and I'm a trauma survivor. So it felt, you know, oppressive. It was, it felt heavy. And so the first thing I did was say, do you mind if I ask you a question? And, and in this tone, he, and he said, yes. And I said, what reaction were you hoping to achieve by making those statements? Right. Very calmly. Not, I was no longer in the emotional side. I was in the seeking to understand side. I was not trying to be understood. I wasn't going to justify. I wasn't going to defend myself. And that's one of the other tricks is I don't defend myself as a person. 
some people will try to take the, the make personal attacks. That has nothing to do with me. That is their own fear. That is their own stuff that they're like bringing to the table. And so when you don't react to that and you create tools, and for me, how, do you mind if I ask a question? If somebody's being a jerk, I, I have been known to say, do you mind if I ask you a question? Do you mean to be an asshole? <laughs> right? Are you trying to be a jerk? Um, are you trying to rail, you know, rail, take this off the rails? What are you trying to accomplish? And what reaction do you want from me? Right? Because then tell me what the reaction is. And then, because usually what they're trying to do is they're trying to hammer a point home. They're trying to get me to make a concession. And it's like, if you're trying to get me to make a concession, this is not the behavior that will get it. And, and I will say that this is not the behavior that's going to get a concession. Right. And as soon as you start to demonstrate that you're not, that they aren't able to move you with their emotion, as soon as you show up and are, for lack of a better term, stoic in how you, how you are, um, or that when you're, and then you recognize when you're not able to do that and your emotion is getting the better of you and you go, time for break. I'll stop mid-sentence and say, I, I need to, I need, I need time. And time could be five minutes. It could be five hours. It could be five days. I don't know how long the time is going to take. You know, I don't know. It depends on the situation. So those are some of the things that I like to do. All great thoughts and techniques. I'm starting to get jealous as to how much value you can pack into each one of these answers and how many subtle layers they are to each. Now I know, by the way, that if you and I are talking in the future and you say, do you mind if I ask you a question? I just screwed up. So thank you for giving me that <laughs> mental note and red flag to look out for down the road as we keep talking. Um, but love what you said, even just going back to, I don't control my emotions. I control my reactions. I love that. We can't necessarily control how we feel at any moment in time. They're going to be instantaneous. Those emotions are going to spring up on us, but we can absolutely control how we react. And to your point, start to think through what, what, what expectation or what memory caused this? What's it tying back to? What, what's, it's not necessary. I mean, I guess if somebody says, why should I hire a woman? That's really direct. But outside of those ridiculous examples, it might not be what you said to me. It's my perception of what you said to me in relation to some other context or event that set off this emotion. So, so many great techniques. And I truly, truly, truly believe that the most unsettling person is the person who can't be unsettled. And if somebody is resulting to those kinds of emotional attacks, I want to get you off the rail so you'll make a decision you otherwise wouldn't. Then for me, and of course, I'd love your feedback on that. This That's indicative of somebody with a real shallow toolbox. If you have to resort to making those types of threats, comments, attacks, then that's telling me that I'm likely dealing with somebody that doesn't have a whole lot of other options or tools. And all I have to do is let those slide off. And all of a sudden I'm going to be, I'm going to have the initiative in this conversation, so to speak. I'll have the advantage because they're going to be all out of tools and I'm going to still have my whole toolbox open. I agree with that a hundred percent. And and when I encounter those people, I then go back to my clients and I question whether that is a good deal for my clients, right? If somebody's toolbox is so shallow um, that they resort to emotional blackmail, essentially, um, that's, uh, my clients are really heart-centered clients. Like they, they care deeply about their customers, their employees. Um, and most of my clients, like, I was working on an M&A deal and uh, the, our counterpart was really aggressive and didn't treat the negotiation team well at all and was one of those people with a really shallow toolbox. My client walked away from the deal because they recognized that if they are going to treat the negotiation team poorly, what were they going to do to the employees if they bought them? Right. And so that's and that's another thing is that um, people don't understand that negotiation. And this is why I say it's a conversation when when we treat it like a point in time event, 
oh, I'm going to a negotiation. I'm going to a meeting. I'm like, no, that's a meeting. It's no, you've been in the negotiation since you read their marketing materials. Um, the, when we don't recognize that whole process of negotiation and we think about it just as a one-time thing, we excuse our behavior, our bad behavior, or people try to excuse their bad behavior in that one meeting and think they can repair it in a different meeting. That is really hard to do. I was talking to somebody who told this great story about, um, he's an M&A guy, and he was telling the story about how they were looking to buy a company and they took the, they were close to closing the deal and they went out to dinner with the selling company's team and the CEO got drunk and got in his car and drove home. And the next morning they backed out of that deal. Wow. You you are constantly, when you're being evaluated, you're constantly, when you're negotiating, you're constantly being evaluated. Many, many years ago, I was negotiating a procurement deal and the salesperson um, took me out to dinner and he was so excited because they were announcing that they were opening a new plant and they were adding a third shift to an existing plant. Um, and he was just so super excited. And it was, it was super exciting for them. I went back to the office the next day and we cut our production with that company by over 50% because all I heard was risk, untrained employees, waste on the thing, your process. I mean, I, that's all I heard. I was like, when, when you're, when you're ready and you've got, it's actually proof of life on, on, on this new plant and on these new, this new shift, let me know. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back. But, you know, it's like, I wasn't going to pay for that risk. Um, and so you've got to be really, you, you want to be transparent, but you also want to be smart about how you're doing it. Um, you want to be upfront about what, I mean, in that case, it would have been better for the salesperson to say to me, we're introducing, we're opening a new plant. We want to move some of your production to this new plant. And we've got a third shift on your existing plant that we're going to, that we're going to add. It would have been better if, if he had said, we recognize that there are going to be hiccups in that process. We want to make sure that we're working with you to address the hiccups. He didn't do that. He didn't acknowledge that there was risk associated with that. He was just super excited about it. So you got to think about, you got in fact, and this goes to the assessment phase, right? And the, the first part of the process, we spend 70 to 80% of our time on the first part of the process, the assessing the understanding, the, the developing hypotheses, establishing what our trade-offs are, reading existing and available contracts um, as part of that process, reading press releases, financial statements if it's a public company, all researching the individuals who are going to be involved. We do all of that as part of the assessment phase um, because we want to be able to have an an a view of what's possible and what's not possible before we even sit down and then it makes the conversation so much easier. It's from my investigation background, nerd investigation talk. It's like having ground truth. Mm -hmm. There's all this information out. So now I've got that to set as the baseline. At the same time, I'm creating the context for which I'm going to operate within. And now to your point, I'm going to be much more aware about red light, green light, yellow light. These things sound good. They sound bad. Wait a minute. There's risk or something I'm not thinking about. And to your point about the sales guy, totally different example. But recently, where I live, there's all kinds of hullabaloo, is that the right way to say it, about developers coming in and continuing to build more of these gargantuan projects in the country where none of us want them. So I went to a town meeting where one is about to be probably built next to where I live. Fantastic. But you could tell that the people leading the conversation knew what they were up against, that nobody in the room wanted it, and they all came to express their opinion so what they did sounds kind of like what the sales guy did with you. Instead of acknowledging the issues, they started saying, well, we know traffic in town is really bad. So part of this new development is going to be some new roads that's going to help alleviate traffic. And they just tried to shove the new roads at everybody until someone finally stood up and said, well, if you didn't build the houses, we wouldn't need the roads. And then after that, the whole thing goes away. Where to your point, I'm sitting there thinking, if he opened up by saying, hey, listen, we get it. Here are all the reasons why people wouldn't want this or would have concerns or would be upset. Now, 
there are always going to be people that are going to yell at you anyway. But for the most of the room, he just quieted them down. And now he has the opportunity to go through his educational spiel and do those things that he took away from himself by taking a fear-based approach and saying, well, they're all going to be angry. So I'm going to try to sell them that new roads is a good idea. Well, we, yeah, we do need them, but not this way. And for your sales guy, maybe he was nervous. I mean, I'm sure he really was excited, but maybe he was nervous about some of those other pitfalls or opportunities or things if he recognized them at all. So instead of calling it out and building that transparent partnership, it was try to like almost like a magician's trick. Don't look over there. Just look over here. But to somebody as experienced as you, it backfires in the end. Yeah. And I mean, that you never know. I mean, this is a problem that, that a lot of people, especially a lot of our clients don't spend enough time understanding who they're actually negotiating with. At one of my clients right now, I, we negotiated a deal for them in September and then we're are in uh, earlier this year and then we're doing some other work for them now. And one of the things that he was blown, like, like literally blew him out of the water is he, we coached him. So we weren't the face of the negotiation. And the other side had a number of people on their team. And to a person, I was able to predict exactly how they were going to behave, what they were going to do, how, what action, what they were going to say, not, not to a word, but you know, this is what they're going to, this is what they're going to go try. They're going to go do this. And then they're going to come back and tell you this. And this is how to, how to respond to that. Right. And, and it's because when you, when you start getting, when you start becoming a student of people like you and I, and, and really good professional negotiators, the thing we study more than anything else is people, right? You know, numbers, I, I'm a huge numbers person. I love the math. I love, I love everything for me is about generating value. How do we create more value? And value gets defined in lots of different ways for lots of different people. I, we're all about risk mitigation. How do we make sure that risk isn't getting pushed down unnecessarily to our clients? But at the end of the day, the thing that negotiation is about, because it's a conversation about a relationship, is it's about people. And I'm never negotiating with a country. I'm never negotiating with a company. I'm always negotiating with a person. And it's that ability to connect with that person, to have empathy for that per person. Not, not phony empathy, not a, how do I, how do I make you think that I'm empathizing, but I'm going to use it as a bludgeoning tool, which is a popular thought in the, in the market mm -hmm. right now. I'm, I'm putting my spin on that language, but um, that's not empathy. Empathy is really, truly at a subconscious level, under, really connecting with what's important to the people that you're negotiating with. And, you know, I, I think, I think that negotiators who have that empathy, who aren't just like checking boxes, but who are really, really compassionately trying to, to, to figure out what, what is a solution here that is really going to generate a lot of value for all of us is that's the fun part of negotiating is the people piece. And I truly believe that you can use that piece to get your counterparts out of a check the box mentality. If you're negotiating somebody who's just checking the box, you can use those empathetic tools to get them out of the check the box mentality over time. So mm -hmm. now you're having this empathetic conversation about relationships. In a previous conversation, you and I had talking about negotiation and the people piece and the empathy and the conversation the topic of lying came up and another, I don't know how prevalent it still is or isn't, I guess it depends on who you talk to, um, but is the use of dishonesty or deception, if you will, in the negotiation process for people to get to win, to get more of what I want and to keep advantages during the conversation. Now, understanding that there are going to be areas of intel that we just can't share. And, and it could change from conversation to conversation. There's Absolutely. going to be things that I'm never going to tell you and you're never going to tell me. And that's just sort of how this game works, especially in these David versus Goliath negotiations where you are representing David. What is your approach to dishonesty in negotiation? So I do not think that being dishonest in negotiation yields effective outcomes, period. Um, it, 
like I said, my approach is transparent and authentic. And I, I disclose what I can disclose. Um, you are right. There are some things that I just cannot disclose, but I will, I will be, I am an open book. I will tell you what I think. I will tell you what I'm feeling. I will tell you what I think is doable. I'll tell you whether I think it's sellable internally uh, or not. I'll tell you what the obstacles are, right? Um, now, but what I encounter is that I don't get the same level of transparency on the other side, even with big companies. Now, part of it is because big companies, they don't know their business. The people you're negotiating with a big at a big company rarely know and understand the totality of what they do. Um, it's annoying. And so in those cases, I'm trying to be smarter than even they are about what's going on in their, their business. Um, and so there's a lot of education that happens. Um, but I've, yeah, I've had, I, I get lied to all the time. And I, I try what I my approach to lying is and like you um and I'm not I'm you know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk in the market um on body language and all that I think people take it too far I think people take it way too far I don't know people well enough that I'm negotiating with to be able to develop a sufficient baseline to determine just by how they look or how they play with their hair or something like that. If they're lying, I just am not, in, I'm not in, I'm not, I'm not connected to them enough to be able to effectively do that. And, so, but I do pay attention to micro expressions, which is Paul Ekman's work, which I, I do. There's a lot of research around that. There's a lot of support and evidence and it's involuntary. That's the other thing. You can train your body to do all sorts of different things, but you can't, you can't train your body not to react involuntarily to the the different emotions that Ekman talks about in his work. And so um I I I pay attention for that. I I look to see if somebody has is you know gets a duping expression and or you know if some I I watch for those things. But then I use questions. Like it, it all goes back for me. It's questions. Questions help me to under the, when somebody lies to me, it isn't, why did you lie? Because that creates defensiveness. It's like, I think you're lying. What right now I've put them on the attack. That's never going to get me a good outcome. But if I think somebody is, has told me a mistruth, a, a lied by omission, also lying. Um, and that's a big one that people will do is they'll lie by omission. They'll tell me a partial truth, but not the whole truth. Um, and I'll, I'll use questions. Let me ask you some, do you mind if I ask you some more questions about that? Right. And then I start peeling out a piece, sometimes one word at a time to get them to eventually disclose, I wasn't being totally truthful there. Like, I know it's okay, <laughs> right? It's, but can we start over? Can we hit the reset button? Can you not do that again, <laughs> right? And that's, I find that to be much more effective because if somebody gets themselves wound up in a knot and they end up going, ah, shit, she, she, she knows, <laughs> right? And usually I'll know. There's it's occasionally somebody can pull something over on me, but it's really, really hard <laughs> to pull something. I've, I've just seen so many different ways of people lying to me um, that usually you'll you'll end up you'll end up telling on yourself is what that's what my approach is, is to get somebody to tell on themselves. I'm completely on board with the people listening haven't seen my head nodding like a bobblehead doll where you were talking for the last three minutes. I'm completely on board with couple of really important things that that I believe you talked about there. One is I'm with you. Lying is just going to create more problems for you. It's not going to create the value. Stay away from it. If you can't tell someone, just tell them you can't tell them. But the, avoiding dishonesty on your end is the best tactic to take. But as we consider what other people are communicating with us, 
it's, it's a very dangerous jump to assume that somebody's lying to you, especially in some of these Goliath negotiations where they could be so compartmentalized. Like you said, people just don't know. They're not aware. They haven't been told. They don't consider. So it's not that they're lying to you. They're telling you what they believe or what they understand based on their limited perception. So if I think you're lying to me, now I'm angry and I'm taking myself off course. So I love that separation there, which is very important. And I love how you talked about looking to truthfully understand somebody's reaction versus whether they're lying or not. Who cares if they're lying? I'd rather they didn't. But who cares if I know that you're surprised, if I know that you're angry, if I know that you're sad or I know that you're happy or any of these other reactions in the context based on what you said or I said at this moment in time, that's strategic intelligence. That's an advantage to me. I can work with that. But if I just want to say to myself, well, Christine just shifted in her chair and touched her nose and pulled at her ear and smirked. Well, am I supposed to steal third base? Is she uncomfortable? Did the air conditioning just come on? Like, what is what does that all mean? So very much in line with you there. And then I love letting somebody tell on themselves, give somebody time and space, whether it's in one conversation or multiple conversations to let that just unwind itself, give them the opportunity to save face in the process, because unless you're at a spot where you're going to walk away anyway, you're in this together. You've made it this far. You still got to go the rest of the way together. So why burn that bridge? I am curious to the degree that you're comfortable sharing again, not looking for anything that's proprietary involved with something you have ongoing. Are there particular go-to questions that you like, either specifically or conceptually, that you feel like help get the conversation back on track at those moments? So there's one question that I do not ask in those moments, and that is why. Why is absolutely a kiss of death question. Um, Agreement happens in the present and why puts us in the past. It causes us to justify, rationalize, come up with excuses, all those things. So I try to frame the questions in what and how manners, especially if I'm still in exploratory. So there's a point where I'm asking open-ended questions at the beginning where we're, we're trying to figure out how do we make this relationship work. So then at that stage of the negotiation process, I'm asking lots of what, how, how might we, what might we do kind of kind of questions. As we get more and more agreement, we get down to deciding. I'll ask more when, where, more specific questions. Um, but for me, it's really what and how. What, you know, I'll, how might we do that, right? How, you know, what are some of the things that you're trying to discover uh, what have what have you done in the past, right? What when it, when have you encountered this situation before, and what did you do to successfully address it, right? And so asking those kind of questions for me makes a big difference in creating an giving the opportunity. I said earlier about creating the space. It creates the space for them to be able to come in, and now you're inviting them into the conversation to address some of those things um, or whatever the issues may be. Um, And I find those to be very effective. I love it. I love those examples. And my guess is that tends to open up creative problem solving because now you're talking about something almost more procedural. These things would have to happen or these specific steps would have to be in place or normally we wouldn't, but if X, then maybe Y. And now you've got this creative problem solving going on instead of this check the box, paint by number, one fits the other. So in my world, we always have contracts, right? So we're not negotiating without a contract. Every every one of our clients, we have a contract situation. So Con- like right now, I'm so my a little bit about my our Venmaps project product, which is coming out. You know, we took a publicly available contract and we put it through our kind of the paces on our tool. And what what we do is we look at risk factors, and we have four different risk business risk factors that we look at look at, and all of those things start to become trade offs for us. How fast are we getting paid? How much margin do we get to keep? Do we have to change how we something about our people processes and technology. Is this going to impact our strategy, right? Contracts do that. 
And so what happens is that people negotiate price over here and they get going on, you know, that. And I'm like, your cost of this relationship is sitting in your contract. The, the business aspect of how you are going to work sits in your contract and not enough people spend enough time understanding what's in that document. And they don't understand, you know, this one contract we're looking at is a 291 clause contract with 31 different links that reference different policies and processes that the, that this company wants you to, that, that you're required to follow Who the hell's keeping track of all that. They can change them arbitrarily and you have 30 days to get on board with the change or they can terminate the contract. Right. And, and, and the way they word it is if you decide not that you can't get on board, then you get to terminate the contract and then they have no further obligations. Right. It's like, so you've got to understand it's not just there's the process of negotiation, but the pro what you're negotiating is not just price and, and the money and the economics It's how are you going to work together? And so the what and the how questions, the how you problem solve together, the how you collaborate to get to an effective outcome for both of you, that's what the whole negotiation process is about. If you can't, if somebody is really difficult to deal with in the negotiation process, you really need to sit and evaluate if you want to do business with them, because if they're, if they're, hard to deal with now, they're going to be harder to deal with when you have a deal. How are your employees going to be affected by that? How's your processes processes going to be affected by that? You have to be willing to ask those questions. Most of our clients don't have time to ask those questions. They're running businesses. They're, C- they're founders. They're CEOs. They're, they're, they just don't have time. They're CFOs raising rounds, you know, for fun financing. And so they don't have the time to think about that. And the negotiation becomes an afterthought. It just becomes this this memorized activity that they do that they think that they're, you know, okay, I've got it covered off and it's done and I got a contract. That if you really want to be effective in building and growing your business, you need to get effective at thinking about negotiation as a really powerful strategic tool um, and not treat it like a, a, a one point in your work plan. I love it. And I'm going to wrap up on that point because I think you did such a great job encapsulating the process, what you do, how you do it. And I do agree that way too many people bounce from one conversation to the next, like a pinball without stopping to think the threads that tie them together, how we can be better prepared, how it affects our future. It's not just this thing I have to get through right now. It's, it's on a continuing spectrum or line that we have to work our way through. You have given us so much in this conversation. Thank you. For the people who are listening, they can't see the copy of your book behind your shoulder, Why Not Ask, which I highly recommend and I know covers a lot of what we've talked about today. So I know you have the new Venn map coming out. So for people who are looking to learn more about you personally and about your organization, where do they need to go? So you can go to our website at ven, V-E-N-N, negotiation.com. And you can find us on LinkedIn, we have TikTok, YouTube. Yep, we're kind of everywhere. And you can just find Christine McKay or Ven Negotiation. So, And I highly recommend that everybody does just that. And I'll be sure to share the links to everything in our show notes so they can find you, they can find your books. And let's give a quick shout out to your podcast as well in the Venn zone. There's lots of great episodes that people can go back and listen to on any number of negotiation related topics. Yes, we have some powerful interviews, including the one with you, um, which was awesome. And we've got, yeah, we've got some really powerful interviews on the podcast. So. So definitely check out Christine's podcast as well. And like I said, I'll make sure we've got all the links in one spot for everybody to find when this episode comes out. Christine, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for keeping in touch. Thank you for sharing so much incredible wisdom today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved this conversation. I love it when we get together. So my pleasure. Take care. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Likewise. Thank you.
Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. What a wonderful conversation. I appreciate all the depth and all the detail and the direction that you took the entire conversation. Thank you so much. There were so many valuable takeaways there. I hope people had a pen out while they were listening during that conversation. Your thoughts on not being able to win relationships. Fantastic. Knowing your non-negotiables, being able to control the context, who's controlling when and where the, the meeting is taking place or who's taking the notes, setting the meeting notes, all of those things, such great ideas. That three-step process of assess, ask, and act. Fantastic. Christine, once again, thank you so, so much. And I'll be sure to include links to your book and your website and your podcast episodes, everything here for people to be able to listen to. And of course, thank all of you once again for being here and taking the time to listen to our conversation. Thank you so very much. We can't leave without thanking our sponsors one more time. Of course, thank you to Humantel. Head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off the best in class online training to accurately understand what people are thinking and feeling at any moment by recognizing when their emotions are changing within the context of the situation. Please head over to humantel.com and check that training out. Head over to ei-magazine.com for Emotional Intelligence Magazine for their ever-growing catalog of emotional intelligence related resources. And of course, please, for the interviewers, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers, where you can check out all of their training, events, networking, and get all of your questions answered about the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation as well. I can't thank you all enough for taking the time to join us today. Please do the things the algorithms ask us to. Please like the show, share the show, comment on the show, subscribe. We're grateful for all of it. Share your feedback, things you'd like to hear more of, less of, see us do a little bit different, please let us know. We're always looking to grow, adapt, and evolve what we're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time.